Dave Harvey, in his book, Rescuing Ambition, says the following. Have you ever noticed how often our stories are just that, our stories? We become the cast, the script, the plot, and our name is on all the credits. We're on a quest for constant praise, and in the process, we starve our souls. I've had some soul-starving moments. Recently, one of the men from the team of pastors I serve with was telling me about a new initiative the team wanted to undertake. I thought it was a great idea. In fact, I thought it was a great idea a couple of months ago when I thought of it and suggested it in the first place. Now, my idea was being relayed back to me as if it had arrived by courier from some distant planet, or maybe it just seemed that way. But there was no reference to me, my ideas, my greatness, my glory. Nothing. Injustices like this must be answered. Maybe you're thinking, what did you do, Mr. Author of this chapter on selfish ambition? Did you quietly whisper thanks to God that wherever the idea originated, there seemed to be a common vision on an important initiative? Did you recognize that credit isn't important anyway? That what's important is that the church is being served? Did you remember that even if you did suggest it first, you probably got the idea from someone else? Not for a second. (laughs) My idea demanded that I speak. But because my friend is discerning and would have flagged any overt grab for glory, I chose the more subtle, nuanced approach. Carefully referencing my prior conversations and convictions, I dubbed the idea wise, then added my appreciation for how the men around me are so easy to lead. Real smooth, Dave. That's what you call savvy politics. No, that's what you call raw Selfish ambition. Have you ever felt that way? Are we really that selfish? We don't like people to know it. But when we are really testing the genuineness of our motives, all of our campaign slogans would be our names with our face plastered. Our praise, our glory, our honor, our fame. We want our faces on all the world's biggest billboards and everyone asking, who is that person? They are so great. We all have this this selfishness in us. We desire to be known rather than make God's name known. We want people coming to a building on one day out of the week. As they walk in, they're talking about us. As they sit down, they think about how they can praise us. As they praise us, we want them to think about how they can better serve us in all the ways they haven't served us this past week. And the main event comes in the service about us, and the sermon is about how people can better know us. We want monuments built in our honor. We want skyscrapers built in our names, with our names, in big letters on the side. You might say, Jansen, 
I think you might be a little harsh. I don't, I don't want any of those things. Then I might ask this. What do we call the day when we gather to worship God? We call it the Lord's Day. What do we call the other six days that we might not gather with the saints? Are they our days? Too often we treat them like that. Just because we go to church on Sundays, God is good with one of the seven days we give him. And we take the rest. And as long as we keep this up, we are good with God and he is good with us. Friends, we don't really understand how deeply ingrained selfishness is. And while the world gives us two thumbs up affirming our selfishness, God's wrath burns against it. This is why when we're seeking our own glory and our own fame, we need God's wisdom in order to direct our lives in a way that pleases God. Because we simply, we simply cannot please God on our own. So please turn in your Bibles to the book of James. James chapter 3, verse 13 through 18. And if you don't have a Bible or you didn't bring one, there should be a Bible in the sleeve on the back of one of the chairs in front of you. You can use that in this service, and if you don't have a Bible, you're more than welcome to take that. That's our gift to you. James chapter 3, verse 13 through 18 reads this way. This is God's word. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now there is this pattern that James is setting by talking about the tongue in verses 1 through 12. And now he's engaging the conversation about the wisdom a Christian needs in order to tame the tongue. So verses 1 through 12 is about the tongue and how to tame it. And verses 8, 13 through 18 is about wisdom from above in light of the previous discussion on the tongue. And chapter 4, verse 1 through 12, is about worldliness and quarrels breaking out among them. My guess is that it's possibly referencing the disorder mentioned here in this passage. So much of James feels like swimming under the surface. We feel like we're holding our breath for a long time. And there aren't many times where James comes to the surface to take a breath. And so we might read this book saying to ourselves, James, you are really laying it on heavy. Well, be encouraged, friends. This passage, through this passage, though it's heavy, the content is heavy, it is a bit of a breath of fresh air. 
James begins to talk a little more positively. So much of James is filled with, with these imperatives. Do this and do that. But this passage really addresses the root. The root of the matter. And it's the heart. Specifically, it is talking about the natural inclination of the heart. That being jealousy and selfish ambition. That reveals itself in the ways mentioned. Disorder. And every vile practice. Friends, this passage even goes as far as to explain this, that this kind of heart that is filled with jealousy, springing from pride, is not in accordance with heavenly wisdom, and that it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. And then talks about heavenly wisdom as being something that is not what we could do on our own. So in this passage, there's this contrast being drawn out. The contrast is between those who have jealousy and selfish ambition in their hearts and those who have heavenly wisdom residing in the heart. The contrast between worldly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. And so this passage contrasts the two by talking about four things. So I'd like to list these, and these are the way I'll be drawing out the skeleton of this text. So first of all, it asks the question, what each of them is? What is worldly wisdom, and what is heavenly wisdom? Second thing, it says, what, or what do they bring? What do they bring to the, to the table? What qualities do they bring? And the third thing is, what is their effect? What do they do to the community of faith? And the fourth thing is, what I will end on, and it is, how do we cultivate peace in the community of faith? So James also follows a pattern, similar pattern in the passage before this. So we talked about worldly wisdom. We're talking about worldly wisdom and heavenly wisdom as almost being their own characters in the story. So as a result of today's sermon, I pray that we will all have clarity on the kind of wisdom the world promotes and the wisdom that God promotes in his people, in his church. That we would all see the pollution, friends, the pollution of the world's wisdom and the beauty of godly wisdom as we look at the products of both and that we are all encouraged. If you were convinced that you needed to cut your tongue out last week, I pray that today you would see that God can redeem and bring flourishing from what we foolishly use to destroy. And God gives us his spirit, the spirit of wisdom, to do that. So to break down this passage real quickly, the passage is presented to us first in verse 13 about what a person who has heavenly wisdom lives like. This verse, this verse says that those who are wise and understanding will by their good conduct show their works in the meekness of wisdom. And as he goes on after this, James takes a detour into worldly wisdom from verses 14 through 16. And he talks about bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in our hearts. And if we do have those things, which we all do, in some degree or another, we are not to boast and be false to the truth. In other words, lie about it. Say that we're one thing and actually be another. And in verse 15, James defines what this worldly wisdom is, saying that it is earthly, it's unspiritual, it's demonic. 
And he finishes off the conversation with world, about worldly wisdom in verse 16, discussing what are the fruits of worldly wisdom. And in verse 17 through 18, he takes another turn. He circles back to heavenly wisdom. So he almost starts with heavenly wisdom and ends with heavenly wisdom, discussing what it is, what the attributes of heavenly wisdom are, and the fruits of heavenly wisdom on the community of faith. So what is worldly wisdom? Let's ask that question. Verse 15 says, This is not, talking about wisdom that roots in jealousy and and selfish ambition, this is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly. It is unspiritual. It's demonic. Now what does each of these mean, friends? What does this earthly, unspiritual, demonic mean? Well, by earthly, by earthly wisdom, he means wisdom that resides with men. He means a low and groveling kind of wisdom. A wisdom that men use, wisdom that men approve of. Proverbs 14:12 says, "There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death." Proverbs 16:25 says the same thing. We know the passage in Romans 1, speaking about not acknowledging God as who He is and instead become what was contrary to nature. Verse 29 through 32 in Romans 1 says they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Friends, the wisdom of the world is the approval of devilish things. Friend, there is a way that wisdom that seems right to a man, there is a wisdom that seems right to a man, but it will lead to death. It cannot lead to a knowledge of the truth. Because it is an earthly wisdom. It is employed by earthly minds about earthly things and for carnal and earthly purposes. The second thing he mentions here is unspiritual. Earthly and unspiritual. Not only is it a wisdom that people use, but it is a wisdom that is bound by nature. The word unspiritual literally means natural. In systematic theology, there's, a, there's what's called natural or general revelation and special revelation. And each of these reveals something about God. But the, res, but the reason that the first is called natural is because it's bound by nature. You cannot know how to repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ without special revelation, the Bible. You can't believe in Jesus Christ without the Bible. You can't stare at a mountain and become a Christian. You can stare at a mountain and say, wow, who made that mountain? And friends, that is the correct response. It should point us to God. What God has created, only it only points to God. God's created natural world can't save anyone. It's primarily a wisdom that's focused on the senses, not a spiritual wisdom. Think about this in light of of science. You You might know an atheist who might pose a question to you. Prove God exists through science. 
Well, brothers and sisters, I don't want to discourage you, but here's the reality of the issue. You can't. You can't prove God exists through science. Now, don't misunderstand me. That does not mean that science doesn't point to God's existence. Think about what science is for. It has to do with natural wisdom, the natural world. It has to do with what we can see, what we can hear, what we can taste, what we can touch, what we can smell. Science has to do with the tangible world, the natural world, and the investigation of those things. And what does Scripture say about God? He is a spirit. He's a spiritual being. You can't prove something spiritual exists with natural tools. It's impossible. You can't do it. It's like trying to hammer a nail with a cloud. It's impossible. But the creation points to God. Every single speck of dust shouts God's glory and the world still doesn't know him. Everything points to him. Everything shouts glory to him. And the rocks can even cry out if God bid them to. Friends, it takes illumination. It takes the Spirit of God birthed in our hearts to make us a Christian. We can point to God's existence with creation, but God can prove his own existence by the Spirit through the Word of God. Friends, the philosopher Plato, the genius philosopher, knew that creation pointed to a creator. When he said there was something called an uncaused cause, or he even called it an unmoved mover, he knew something. He knew something had to tip the first domino to cause the chain reaction. He knew it. But he still died in his sin. Under the wrath of God, friends, natural wisdom is characterized by humanness, frailty, an unsanctified heart, and an unredeemed spirit. Now, the third is demonic. So we have earthly, we have unspiritual, and demonic. And you can see as all these qualities of worldly wisdom are mentioned that they keep getting deeper. They keep getting darker. James describes worldly behavior in terms that progress from bad to worse. Recalling the list in verse 5, or the second half of verse 5 and 6. The tongue that's set on fire by hell. That it's a tongue of, un, of a, a, the tongue is a world of unrighteousness. This behavior is ultimately earthbound, absolutely sensual, as opposed to spiritual. And its origin is in the cosmic powers. The origin, friends, is in the cosmic powers of darkness. Satan authored this wisdom. This is the anti-God wisdom. Not only does this wisdom originate with Satan, but it is used by Satan. Remember Isaiah 14, the historical passage about the fall of Satan, fall of Lucifer. Why? Why was Lucifer cast out? Isaiah 14, 13 through 14 says this, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. 
I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the highest clouds. I will make myself like the most high. God will not share his glory. God will not share his glory. And anyone who exercises this satanic, worldly wisdom does exactly what Satan did. I will be like the Most High. And what did we read last week in Genesis 3? How did Satan tempt Eve? What was the lie? You will be like God. Do you want to know what plunged Satan from heaven? Do you know what you want to know what the meteor of Satan falling from heaven was? What was the origin? Jealousy. Selfish ambition. Wanting to promote himself over God. Do you want to know what plunged humanity into sin and death? And you know what plunges us into temptation and sin and death? Jealousy. Selfish ambition. Friends, very often what sets the tongue on fire is the hellfire found in our hearts. Now what does this worldly wisdom bring with it? Verse 14 reads this way in James chapter 3. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So he gives these two qualities, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, that the demonic wisdom produces. It's like a factory, just produces it. This worldly and demonic wisdom is characterized by pride, envy, and selfish ambition. The Greek term for bitter was used of undrinkable water. When combined with jealousy, it defines a harsh, resentful attitude toward others. You become bitter. Jealousy is a powerful feeling of antagonism and hostility. We need to watch out for the three-headed monster of jealousy, envy, and covetousness. One theologian explains jealousy and envy and makes his own distinctions between jealousy and envy when he writes, Jealousy is the angry desire to keep what we possess what we possess, and are afraid someone else wants. Whereas envy is the angry desire for what someone else possesses. Though none of us really want to admit this because it lets other people kind of gain power over what we, over what we think. We have all felt this. We've all felt this jealousy, covetous envy in our hearts. We have all felt or our own resentment when our peers succeed over us. We get jealous when people achieve or outachieve us. Even pastors deal with this. Why is his church bigger? Why are they growing while we are declining? Why do they have so much money for ministry while we are drowning in debt? Friends, people get jealous for all kinds of reasons. People get suspicious that they might be replaced at work. Or maybe a new friend has entered the picture and they're worried 
that their relationship will never be the same. Or your single friend got married and they're not spending as much time with you anymore. You're having a hard time dealing with it. Jealousy happens in all kinds of situations in our lives. Jealousy is common with romantic relationships. And notice the, the poison that comes from this. You can't believe that this guy likes another girl. So you're mean to her all the time. Or you compete for his affection because you want it all for yourself. This kind of jealousy always also can happen in in our corporate life, at your job. When your rival has some kind of success, it eats you up. And when he fails, it makes your day. It happens in church as well. Church members get worried that if the church grows too much, they might lose their seat. So they become resentful toward other folks. People get jealous when it comes to their looks. You look at yourself and wish you had muscles like him, or you wish that you had her looks. So you find yourself bad-mouthing her to other people to compensate for your jealousy. At some point, we all find ourselves wishing that we were as strong as smart, as popular, as successful, as wealthy, as athletic, and as competent as others. And let me just tell you something. There will always be someone who is all those more than you. I found that. You thought you were smart? Well, there's someone smarter. Social media, friends, it takes this out of proportion. When you see people posting everything about their family, their friends, their house, their car, all while you know your life just simply doesn't look like that. And jealousy behind a screen breeds and festers in your heart. Thomas Manton commented on this passage like this. There are two sins which were Christ's sorest enemies. Covetousness. And envy. Covetousness sold Christ and envy delivered him. These two sins are still enemies to Christian profession. Should we harbor in our hearts that corruption which betrayed Christ and kindled the world and poisoned the church? Friends, we might be tempted to think that jealousy is not really that big of a deal. But what stagnates in the heart will give off, it will give off a scent. People will begin to smell the miry bog of jealousy. Wisdom of the world will tell you, keep it in your heart. Nobody knows. Beloved, God's wisdom clashes with the wisdom of the world here. Worldly wisdom says if you want to be rich, you need to be stingy and keep things for yourself. Godly wisdom says one person gives freely yet gains more. Another withholds what is right only to become poor. Worldly wisdom says if someone wrongs you, get back at them. Hold a grudge or revel in their failures. But godly wisdom says don't gloat when your enemy falls. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. 
do good to your enemy. Worldly wisdom says money will make you happy, so get as much as you can. Godly wisdom says anyone trusting in his riches will fall. And a righteous person eats until he is satisfied. Be content, friends, with what you have. God says that often you will be happier with less. Scripture says, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with turmoil. While the world calls us to chase money with all we have, we can observe that riches often bring great sadness. Listen to the words of the Puritan Thomas Watson. He says, true happiness consists not in beauty, honor, or riches, the world's trinity, but in the forgiveness of sins. Blessed is the man who is forgiven. He says the world's hypocrite, or the the hypocrite, deceives others while he lives, but deceives himself when he dies. Jealousy and selfish ambition. Selfish ambition sometimes is translated strife. It refers to self-seeking that engenders antagonism and factionalism. The Greek word came to describe anyone who entered politics for selfish reasons, sought to achieve his agenda at any cost, even if it meant trampling others. Selfish ambition is divisive. It's divisive. It's a divisive willingness to split the group in order to to achieve personal power and prestige. It is translated as rivalry. In Galatians 5.20, Philippians 1.17, and Philippians 2.3. Carl Truman wrote in an article published in 2010, and I believe it would be enlightening here. I'm going to read a lengthy portion of his article. This belief that we are each special, and notice his English, he's an Englishman. This belief that we are each special, by and large, is complete tosh. Most of us are mediocre. Make unique contributions only in the peculiar ways we screw things up. And could easily be replaced as husband, father, or employee by somebody better suited to the task. The mythology, nevertheless, helps us sell things and allows us to feel good about ourselves. Indeed, the older you get, the more things it sells, from gym memberships to cosmetic surgery to hair pieces to Botox injections, but it's all just mythology. The whole human history so far strongly suggests that as you get old, you cease to be cool, and that you inevitably find that life just isn't as sweet as it was when you were 18. He says again, put bluntly, When I read the Bible, it seems to me that the church is the meaning of human history. It is the church, a corporate body, not the distinct individuals who go to make her membership. Of course, all of us individuals have our gifts and our roles to play. The Lord calls us each by name and numbers the hairs of our heads. But to borrow Paul's analogy of the body, 
What have? We have no special destiny in ourselves, taken as isolated units, any more than bits of our bodies do in isolation from each other. When I act, I act as a whole person. My hand has no special role of its own. It acts only in the context of being part of my overall body. With the church, the destiny of the whole is greater than the sum of the destinies of individual Christians. Friends, we all need a healthy dose of humility. We all need it. We don't need our pride stroked because we are already good at it. Let me just tell you. We need to be humbled. You know, Blake has said before, and and I've said it before, but the thing today is is focusing on low self-esteem. They have low self-esteem. And many will say that if a person's struggling with depression or anger or acting out, that they have low self-esteem and they really need to be to be built. They need their esteem built. Friends, think about, what, think about this for me, with me for a moment. If a person appears to be thinking lowly about themselves, we think we need to just pick them up because they're beating themselves up without reason. You know why we beat ourselves up? Because we're not receiving the entitlement we think we deserve. And when we don't hit the mark, we beat ourselves up. Because we think we still deserve it. The world says, if you want to get ahead in life, you need to promote yourself. God says, let another praise you, not your own lips. The world says, be buddies with your kids. Don't discipline them or say no to them. You don't want them to be maladjusted, do you? God says, the one who loves his son, his child, disciplines him diligently. The world says follow your heart when it comes to dating, the friends you have, the style of clothes you wear, the lifestyle you lead. Don't listen to your parents or your pastors. Be yourself. Proverbs says that listening to your heart is foolish. I'm going to talk to kids, children, teenagers, You need to submit to your parents and listen to godly wisdom. Worldly wisdom says, God, go along to get along. Don't jeopardize friendships by having difficult conversations. It's not your business anyway. Godly wisdom says, better an open reprimand than concealed love. God tells us these things because he loves us. And he loves his church. Like Charles Spurgeon said, why do we hold our candle to the sun? Friends, why do we stand before the godliness of a Mount Everest and say, look at my anthill? We do this. Look at me. Now, friends, what is the effect of these two things? Jealousy, selfish ambition. And there's no guessing why James says that the product of jealousy and selfish ambition is disorder in every vile practice. The passage says there, 
Verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. What more could Satan want in the church than confusion that results from the instability, chaos of human wisdom and things that are not so much intrinsically evil as they are simply good for nothing? The word there, evil, vile practice, or every vile practice, doesn't mean that it's necessarily evil. It just means it's useless. It's like good for nothing. Beloved, Satan doesn't necessarily always desire a healthy church to be filled with people who are hypocrites, although that's true. He wants that hypocrisy to extend to the church. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Satan doesn't want a few hypocrites in a healthy church. He wants hypocrisy-infested churches. But how does that happen? One hypocrite at a time. He wants hypocrisy to become so prevalent in churches that they are known by the surrounding community as being hypocritical churches. And how does that hypocrisy spread? Friends, it's why James talked about the tongue in the previous passage. It spreads with this fire that lies behind our teeth. The tongue is how hypocrisy spreads. See, friends, Satan wants the church to be rendered ineffective. Friends, what is heavenly wisdom? In contrast to worldly wisdom, what is heavenly wisdom? Verse 17 reads this way. But wisdom, the wisdom from above, is first pure. Now let's just stop there for a moment. It's first pure. Wisdom itself doesn't do all these qualities mentioned after it, but they are what wisdom produces. Heavenly wisdom produces all these qualities. In contrast to the pollution of the tongue and the satanic worldly wisdom, the heart of heavenly wisdom is purity, not pollution. Purity. What heavenly wisdom first produces in the heart of a person is the cleanness of heart. Notice the passage, what it says there, it says first, first purity, then peace. 1 Peter 1, 22-23 says, having purified your souls by, the, by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Friends, we must be washed in the blood of Christ. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, we must first have peace with God before we can have peace with one another. 
any attempt to have peace in our hearts, when our hearts are not at peace with God, is going to be a failed attempt. The vertical relationship must be reconciled before we can be. We need to know that as we are talking about worldly wisdom and godly wisdom, what we are really doing is contrasting the spirit of God that fills God's people and the satanic spirit that fills and is active the people of the world. We need to understand that distinction because we are not simply talking about doing good things compared to doing bad things. We are talking about something deeper, something intrinsic. We're talking about something that's entrenched in the heart. When we're seeking joy from God, we might pray, Lord, give me joy. We can pray that. But what we need to pray is, God, give me your spirit in abundance. Because we don't need joy in and of itself. We need the spirit of God that brings joy with it. Salvation is what brings the righteousness of God and bears it down on us. Purity is something God must give. We cannot generate it on our own. And we must have it. Ephesians 1.17, and Isaiah says, the spirit of God is the spirit of wisdom. In James 1.21, he says, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Friends, James is recalling that same idea here. This truth, this word that must plant itself in the soul before it can be lived. It's not about doing for God. It's about being in Christ. Graham Goldsworthy says in his book, The Gospel and Wisdom, he says, from the biblical point of view, the youngster who is intellectually slow, but has a simple trust in Jesus as his Savior is wiser than the brilliant philosopher who, despite his intellectual powers, refuses the knowledge of God in his word. We read it earlier. 1 Corinthians 2, 12-13, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Do you realize when you have his spirit, he gives you wisdom? He gives you this knowledge. The floodgates open. He says, come for it. Ask me for it. It's yours. He continues, and we impart this in words, not, by, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Friends, that's why regenerate church membership is the cornerstone of church health. I didn't say it's the cornerstone of the church. Christ fills that office. But it is the cornerstone of a healthy church. If the Spirit of God is not here, then there is no way that we can practice any of these attributes of wisdom. We cannot have peace. We cannot be gentle towards one another. We cannot be open to reason. 
We cannot be full of mercy and good fruits. We cannot be impartial and sincere. It will be morality, not holiness. It will be empty morality and not holiness. Purity refers to spiritual integrity and moral sincerity. Every genuine Christian should have this kind of heart motivation. See, friends, we're not that impressive. But we have an all-powerful God who is very impressive. Worldly wisdom promises temporary pleasure at the price of eternal misery. The world says, have fulfillment now, have riches now, have beauty now, live your best life now. When the wisdom of God says, give up all the things in this world and be fulfilled in me. God is rich in mercy. And God has lavished it on us if you're a Christian. He has lavished that mercy on you. And when we stand before God's throne, friends, that day when we stand before God's throne, perfect. Because of the great love with which God has loved us in Christ, we will cry out, worthy. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And we will hear every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea and in all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Friends, we cannot live our best life now because our best life is coming. We cannot live our best life now. Ours is coming. Worldly wisdom is cheap satisfaction, while heavenly wisdom offers life eternal. Now what does heavenly wisdom bring with it? All those qualities, peacefulness, gentleness, Verse 17 says, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Friends, peaceable means peace-loving or peace-promoting. It's a person that desires peace to be in the midst of God's church. Gentle means a character trait of sweet reasonableness. This person will submit to all kinds of mistreatment and difficulty with an attitude of kind, courteous, patient humility without any thought of hatred or revenge. Friends, there's a reason why he's sharing this in light of the beginning of chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Gentleness is willing to be mistreated for, God, for Christ's sake. Open to reason. The original term describes someone who is teachable. They're compliant. They might be easily persuaded. And who willingly submitted to military discipline or moral or legal standards. For believers, it defines obedience to God's standards. Full of mercy. The gift of showing concern for those who suffer in pain and hardship. And the ability to forgive quickly. The words impartial and sincere mean more closely without hypocrisy. 
without hypocrisy. The Greek word occurs only here, only here in the Greek New Testament. It is nowhere else. And it symbolizes a consistent, unwavering person who is undivided in his commitment and conviction and does not make unfair distinctions. Friends, wisdom, after reading all those qualities there, wisdom is primarily relational. It's a relational thing. Knowledge fills our head. Wisdom asks the question, now how should I relate to you? The effect of wisdom in verse 18 Verse 18 reads this way, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Friends, verse 18 teaches that all these qualities of heavenly wisdom in contrast to disorder and every vile practice will produce a harvest of righteousness by those who make peace, those who promote peace those who sow the seeds of peace. And who are those who make peace? Friends, verse 13 says, by his good conduct. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct. Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Friends, a person who is peaceable, a person who spreads and sows the the seed of peace in order to see the harvest of righteousness is a person who by their good conduct show their works in the meekness of wisdom. That is the heart of a person who is filled with heavenly wisdom. Now, beloved, the reason James is contrasting these two ideas of worldly wisdom and heavenly is because jealousy and selfish ambition is the antithesis, the antithesis of spirit-filled peace. Promoting yourself, your ideas, your agenda above God's will bring disorder where God desires there to be order. And he has already brought order to his church. Friends, peace is a subset of unity. Peace is a subset of unity. Satan wants to use all of us to destroy what God has made beautiful through the work of his beloved son. Do not take your responsibility of maintaining the God-given unity and peace in the church lightly. God's spirit gives it. God's people are called to cultivate it. God's wisdom produces that which is right, that which is pleasing and honoring to God, and that which is good for the people of God. Matthew 5, 9, we read it earlier. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peace is what God desires in our relationships, our homes, our churches. Now, this is not, ex- this is not peace at the expense of truth. As in, let's all just get along and avoid truth. And conviction. It's all, it's first all pure and true, trusting that purity 
produces peace. Think about how peace, think about the peace that James talks about and how it plays a role in your home, in your life. When a husband and wife are humbly going before the Lord and pursuing wisdom that is pure and honoring to God, it produces peace in that home. Let me tell you, husbands, it's Father's Day. You should initiate that with your wife. Say, honey, let's pray together. Honey, let's pray together. Make that a normal outflow of your, your normal vocabulary. Let's pray together. Let's pray together. Let's pray together. And by that, brothers, you are leading your wives to the throne of grace. Because what you're doing is you're helping them see that the solution is not found in you. It's found in God. It's found in Christ. This also happens in the church. When men and women are humbly going before the Lord, leaving self-centered ambition behind and pursuing wisdom that is pure. It produces peacemaking and righteousness in that church. It doesn't mean you always agree about every single detail. That's, that's not what he means. But it does mean that together you are humbly seeking God's wisdom and putting aside selfish ambition. We need to ask God to remove from us Worldly thinking and worldly wisdom. Humble yourselves before him. Ask him to give you wisdom that is pure, that is peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Pray those things. Scripture says earlier in James chapter 1, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. If you don't see the fruits of wisdom in your home, friends, you might not be asking for it. Pray that he would use you to sow not disorder and evil, but to harvest peace and righteousness in your relationships with others. Now, friends, lastly, how do we cultivate peace in a community of faith? We need to ask ourselves hard questions. We need to seek to use questions to dig out the selfish ambition and jealousy that our hearts have there. Does seeking this situation or talking with this person originate from a pure motive? Friends, asking those hard questions to our hearts is one of the best ways to know whether or not our motives are pure. And when we are seeking someone, if we're seeking someone to talk to or if we're seeking a difficult situation or make a hard decision, we need to make a wise decision. Am I doing this because I want to keep something I don't want to lose? Or I don't want, to, I don't want anyone else to have what I already have? This is the root of jealousy. And what we find when we ask this question is our idols. Friends, when you ask questions like this, what you're actually finding is the root foothold of idols in your heart. What are you unwilling to give up that you feel like you should keep? Asking questions like this opens the lowest, darkest rooms of our hearts. Ask them because God wants the idols in your hearts to die. 
Am I seeking this out because I want something that someone else has? Is position, power, prestige your motive? Remember what we talked about last week, flattery. One of the ways a jealous heart reveals itself is through flattery. Seeking to gain something from another person with a platform that we want. Friends, this is, the, this is the farthest thing from a pure motive. The farthest thing from a pure motive. Ask yourself, will this situation, will it seeking it out provide peace to the whole community? This can apply to your work, apply to your home, apply to the church. Will it provide peace to the whole community? This is especially important when talking about the church community. Friends, will this decision or action or conversation, though it might be painful in the moment, bring, bring peace to the whole? In the way you ask, is it filled with gentleness? Is it filled and, and clothed in gentleness? Is it a reasonable request? Or an action or decision, is it reasonable? Friends, this can reveal the heart motive. This can reveal a big heart motive. If the question you're asking or the action that, or decision that you're seeking out is, is not a reasonable decision, it might even be foolish. And this is probably showing you don't have a motive ushering from a pure heart. A heart that seeks the wisdom of God first. The reasonableness of a decision often reveals who is driving the ship. Remember the illustration back in the beginning of chapter 3? Who has the reins of the horse? Who is guiding this thing? Because agenda, really if you boil it down, our agenda is the question. Whose agenda are you promoting? Is it yours or is it God's? Often what we are seeking to push, if we're seeking to push an unreasonable agenda that is apparently unreasonable, then it usually shows that we're seeking to push our own agenda. And this is harsh to those around us. It's not gentle at all. It's unreasonable. If, we are seeking, if what we are seeking to do, is it gentle to those who are around us? Will you blindly bulldoze those you love, your family, your church, for your own agenda? Are you so set in your ways that you're unwilling to learn? Are you willing to be told you're wrong? If you're unwilling to be told you're wrong, then beloved, let me just say, your motive is probably wrong. It's probably not ushering from a heart that has pure wisdom as its foundation. Either you're so entrenched in your arrogance that you're simply, you simply don't understand why anyone would think the way, anyone wouldn't think the way you do, or you simply think everyone else's opinion is just wrong. Friends, one very helpful way, very helpful way to test someone's motive, if you're asking, if you're asking a question to you and if you're asking a question to them, right off the bat, if they want to have a controversial conversation, or if you're having a controversy at, at work and they seem to be pushing an agenda or they want to have this conversation, 
Let me tell you, though, I didn't come up with this. Blake did. I'll just share that with you. Ask this question before you do this. Are you willing to accept before we have this conversation that it's possible you could be wrong? Just the possibility. That's it. You could be wrong. If they are unwilling to say yes to that, don't have the conversation. Don't have it. Refuse to have it. Because you see from that impure motive. If they're unwilling to say they could be wrong, you see that that's an impure motive. And that, the conversation, would get nowhere. It would get nowhere at at all. You would make no progress. You would simply be having an argument. It's a good question to ask yourself. Before I go and have this conversation, am I willing to accept that I could be wrong? Before I have it? Friends, it's just a good heart question. Another question that, I, that we can ask ourselves is this. Am I, a, am I confusing my opinions, my views, with who I am in Christ? When I was in seminary, one of my professors' names was Dr. Lofton. I liked Dr. Lofton. And he was a teacher of my systematic theology course. He taught my, all my courses in my systematic theology classes. And I remember the first class because he brought up this enlightening point, similar to the one I just mentioned. We so often tie our views or our opinions to our identity so that every single time someone disagrees with our view or opinion on a certain issue, we think they are in some way harassing who we are. We think that they're attacking us, though they're just trying to say that 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 view might be off. We think they're attacking our identity. You don't approve of me. Friends, this is one of the most subtle ways that satanic worldly wisdom seeps into the church. Don't question who I am, and by that they mean don't question what I believe either, what I think, what my opinion is. Friends, we're all made in the image of God. We need to understand that. That's an established truth. We are all image bearers. So our identity, it's not negotiable. We are made in the image of God. And when we disagree with one another about opinions, not truth, we are not attacking identity. We are simply questioning opinions. If someone is seeking to actually build you up, when they question your opinions, don't take that as an attack on your character or your identity. Take it with humility, understanding that they want to correct faulty thinking while loving you. That's called sparks that fly from iron sharpening iron. And really what it's showing is our selfish ambition. If you're here and you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian, I'm talking to you. There is a way that we as Christians can lovingly uphold the image of God that you bear while seeking to correct the faulty thinking that does not line up with God's truth. And friend, I'm sorry. 
I'm sorry if there have been Christians in your past or you read it on the news who have not shared the gospel with you in a gentle way, with compassion and understanding, who have used the gospel more like an accusing bat to beat you down rather than sharing an all-sufficient Savior who desires you to repent of your sins and trust in Christ alone for salvation. You don't need to be a better person. You need peace with God. Salvation from the wrath to come. This is why we as Christians call Jesus Christ our Savior. Because he has saved us. And we know it was not because of anything we did to make God more pleased with us. We realize, like Martin Luther said, we are not loved because we're lovely. We are lovely because we are loved. If you're not a Christian, we desire you to know Christ and him crucified and resurrected from the dead. Call upon Christ. Call upon him. And he can save you. Do you desire to benefit other, another person as a result of having the conversation that you're seeking to have? Do we as Christians seek to meet the misery of the world with the compassion of Christ? Friends, often what happens is if we have an evangelistic conversation where we're trying to beat the gospel into someone's head, often what that's proving is that we don't believe in a God that is sovereign. We don't believe God is provident. We don't believe that he actually controls and holds the, the cattle on a thousand hills. We don't believe that the mountains are his. We don't believe that the hearts of men are his. It shows a faulty view of God. By the atoning sacrifice of Christ, a way is open for the exercise of mercy towards the sons of men in harmony with the demands of truth and righteousness. In Christ, mercy and truth meet one another. Like Romans 3.26, God is just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ is loving mercy your motivation as it was God's when he sent his son? The only way that we will ever see a harvest of righteousness is if peacemakers sow the seed of peace. And friends, Christ is our peace. Now I'd like to read, in closing, a rendition of Psalm 3. And it was written by Henry Francis Slight. It says this, Thy promise, Lord, is perfect peace, and yet my trials still increase, till fears at times my soul assail, that Satan's rage must prevail. Then, Savior, I fly to thee, and in thy grace my refuge see. Thou heardst me from thy holy hill, and thou wilt hear and help me still. Beneath thy wings secure I sleep. What foe can harm while thou dost keep? I wake and find thee at my side. 
my, my omnipresent guard and guide. Oh, why should earth or hell distress with God so strong, so nigh to bless? For him alone, salvation flows. On him alone, my soul repose. Friends, is your heart at peace with God this morning? Let that peace flow to your fellow brother and sister in Christ. And let us remember, too, that it will never be well, as we're about to sing, until we have that peace. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your good wisdom, the good wisdom that you give us through your spirit of wisdom. We thank you that in Christ you give us what we never have deserved and never will merit. We thank you for the sacrifice of our beloved Savior who gives us and grants us peace with you. And Lord, we ask that you would, by your grace, extend that peace to us, that we would have hearts filled with peace, filled with wisdom, and seek to spread that peace among this church, among our families, among our workplaces. Lord, above all things, I ask that you would give us peace with you, as you have already done in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.